This is Werewolf the Podcast, a podcast about the role-playing game, Werewolf the Apocalypse. Have you heard of high-level games? If you're a content creator looking to make your dream a reality, you need high-level games. High-level games does layout, editing, and development support such as Kickstarter and more. Even if you're not a creator and just want to enhance your game with exciting new supplements, go to highlevelgames.ca and check out Dark New England for V20. High-level games. We want to help you level up your role-playing game. Highlevelgames.ca Welcome to another episode of Werewolf the Podcast. I am your host, Josh Heath. I am joined by my friend, Jim Dealey. Jim, how are you doing today? I'm experiencing a bit of rage, so it's a perfect time to talk some werewolf. Great. But it's always a good day to hang out with you, Josh. Absolutely. And hopefully we can get a little bit of that rage out talking through this book. But, you know, we'll, we'll talk about it sensibly and not just scream and yell about it. Today, we are going to be discussing an interesting book that was released in the year 2000, Guardians of the Cairns. Now, before I say anything else, I have never read this book before. This is one of those books that, for whatever reason, I just missed. And so coming back to it and reading through it made me go, oh, this is where all kinds of things come from that end up in in later books and other people mention constantly, but I just never knew where it originated. So that's certainly interesting. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of one of those essential storyteller tools books for this for this line that you don't know about it because it will slip under your radar. It's not labeled ST tool. It's not labeled player's guide. It's not labeled an obvious book title that will tell you, no, there's actually stuff in here you really need. Yeah. And you don't think about it because the previous book on Cairns, Places of Power, was a book of pre-built Cairns. Whereas this book has all the tools you need to build your own. And we're going to get into that. Yeah. And though, at the same token, they include most of this in later books as well. So Revised Werewolf has a lot of these elements in the core book. In W20, almost all of these elements are in that book. So you don't necessarily, it's one of those interesting books that it's like, when it came out, I absolutely believe it was essential. Now looking back on it, Maybe not essential, but certainly interesting reading. So taking it from the top, talking about the numbers issues, this was written by Forrest B. Marchenton. Dina McKinney, Dina, Dina wrote one of my other favorite books, which was Kinfolk, Unsung Heroes. And the reason awesome I am calling Dina out is the fiction in that book was really, really good. And I have a feeling that Dina was really, really integral to writing some of the fiction that happened in this book as well. Just a feeling, I don't know that for a fact, but that's my guess. Um, Ethan Skemp was also an author on this. He was the developer, um, edited by Eileen E. Miles, art by Andrew Bates, Mitch Bird, Joe Corony. I got Joe's name right for the first time, Brian LeBlanc, Steve Prescott, and Ron Spencer with the cover art by ron spencer and you can tell this is absolutely ron spencer cover art oh yeah yeah there's no question at all this is a ron spencer special so jim what are your general feelings about the cover let's start right at the front okay so i look at the cover of this piece and i actually think the cover of this piece kind of sells it wrong if you want it if you really feel it because the cover of this piece pictures a worm beast rampaging right into the heart of a cairn I'm immediately looking at this like, how did you let this get so close? 
Why are there only four defenders? What is going on with this thing? Did they kill it? Did they bring it down? Did it destroy them? Obviously, it didn't kill them all because there's a certain Arun of Aruns teeing up a massive fastball to the knee with Solemn Lord, who's probably going to have a piece to say about getting that thing knocked down. So, yeah, you've already got my attention. But this makes it look like this is going to be an action-packed piece, and it kind of isn't. Yeah, this book is not a book of action. It's a book of setting, of place. Like, the Cairn is the heart of Geru society. And as such, lots of action happens at the Cairn, but not the type of action you picture in a werewolf game where you're out rampaging, killing things. Most of the action at a Cairn are the political, social, familial elements that are really important to werewolf but often get forgotten in the excitement of i'm going to go be a rage monster and destroy all the creatures of the worm so unless you have a storyteller like josh who can definitely spin some drama around cairns as uh you will one day experience when this the last the latest episode of rage across the world hits I really look forward to whenever I finally get the time in my life to edit all of our game episodes because putting them out as an actual play, I think people will be fascinated with the things that you as players have done um, and the story that is being built. Circling back to Guardians of the Cairns, I hate this cover. And I know that's a bold statement, but I don't like this cover because it's really, really red. It's immediately makes me think, oh, anger, danger, bad. And again... For a book that's about Cairns and about the, the family heart, uh, religious heart of your werewolf game, this isn't the right cover for making me as a storyteller think I need to look through this book. This makes me go, oh, this is just like a book about packs or something like that. It's a maybe about, maybe it's going to have some antagonists in, in it or something like that. I don't need this. Um, if I had even seen it, like I honestly... Like I've said before, I don't remember ever seeing this book until I was like, hey, it's on the list to review it. I'm going to look I it up think, and read it. I think they did the wrong Ron Spencer piece for the cover, and I'll tell you why. Mm -hmm. The right Ron Spencer piece for the cover is on page 10, the inside cover of the first chapter, Opening the Cairn. Yep. If he had picked that, if he had colored it in the nice warm tones with some earth tones and some greens, and you show the three types of guru, Hamid, Medus, Lupus, and they're all on guard duty while the other guru in the background is celebrating the moot. Because somebody always has to pull guard duty even during a moot. Yep, yep. So it's like, if you would put that on the cover, it would have been a more truth in advertising kind of op. Uh, and there would have been space for that Ron Spencer art somewhere else in here because there are sections detailing with defenses of cairns and how to build them and how to lay them up. Yep. So I think you're absolutely right. It's the wrong choice of cover for the content. Yeah, which is what it is. Um, but just something to note um, that if you're looking at this book thinking, I'm going to get lots of actions or story ideas, you are, but not in the way you think you are. Agreed. You're, it, it, yeah, this book lures you in in a more subtle way after you get past the Ron Spencer at the beginning. Not that there's anything wrong with Ron Spencer. I see Ron Spencer art, and I'm like, ah, werewolf, right. werewolf it, ultraviolence, I'm home. Definitely <laughs> is iconic werewolf art. That said, the intro fiction to this book is required reading. 
I really is. I do not say that lightly. I almost never say that about these books because generally I find where uh, like White Wolf Fiction meh at best and sometimes really, really good. This is really, really good. This gives you a political story with just a couple of important figures who make sense, who tell you a lot about how a Cairn functions, how, how Garu interact with one another in a political but also socially accurate to Garu society way. And I think everyone should read it just as like, a, oh, this is how this sort of situation would play out in a game. You're absolutely right. It is absolutely required reading because within just five pages, five pages, I am completely immersed in the way this sept runs, the politics going on. You can obviate there the player, you only use a few players. There's an appropriate interaction between it shows you so many things to do right. Yep. It shows you how elders interact with their with their youth. It shows you how Guru will legitimately respond to feeling like they've been passed over for a deserved promotion it, and feeling like they were slighted and how they react when slighted in ways that are passive aggressive and jerky, which are fueled by rage. Yep. And well, then how you undermine that as a player to say, oh, I understand and respect that you are angry. Your rage is valid. This is how I'm going to make amends in a way that's totally accurate. It's so perfect. Yeah, It's so perfect. I don't just say this because it's a Galliard and the Galliard buried the hatchet in the best way a Galliard can bury the hatchet. If you want to end a feud with a guru and you're a Galliard, you have no problem. Just ask somebody what awesome thing they did last week mm-hmm. and make a story out of it. And get them renowned. And get them renowned. No guru doesn't like that solution. Right. I really loved how they showed that. That was beautiful. And then there's the uh, summoning of the spirit that was like two paragraphs before that. I'm like, that guru spirit interaction was priceless. Yep. There's just so much good stuff in here in five pages. Yes. This immediately shows you this more than the cover tells you exactly what the book is about. And that like brings us into the introduction, which is uh, it's not like your single page introduction that we're kind of used to in White Wolf books. It's a couple more pages than that. I think it's three or four pages total. It's it establishes this is what a cairn is. These are why they're important to the Garu. It establishes this the question of how many of them are there in a way by saying it it whatever. That depends on you. That really and depends I, on you. I, I mean, think there are totally some fair. guru STs. I've never run under one of them before, but I'm sure there's a guru ST out there who thinks that 15 Cairns left in the world is an appropriate answer. More, most of my STs have been more along the lines of a few hundred to maybe low thousands. Yeah. I mean, you're that. I was reading. You're that kind of ST. I usually run in the dark ages where there might be a thousand Cairns in Europe alone. Right. And that's just that is why that is a slider you as the st can set to see how much despair how much hopelessness do you want in your world because the fewer every cairns are the more precious each one becomes yep and it becomes 
a totally different game if you dial that number down to really, really small. I think the default, my impression of the default werewolf the apocalypse setting is there are at least a thousand cairns left in the world. Most of them are tiny. Most of them are one point or two point cairns. Right. And like five of them are five level five cairns. That's it. I would say like 50. But but those 50 are widely spread. Right. Like widely spread and you're not going to find if you happen to be a guru at a level of rank five cairn you've got all sorts of problems right that yeah. aren't that are a lot more to do with the fact that you're jostling among about 60 to 70 other guru right. trying to get recognition in a way you wouldn't have a, that problem if you were big fish in a small pond at a one or two rank cairn yeah exactly and i think having small cairns allows you to play local in a way that fits a certain play style of werewolf the apocalypse it's not usually my play style usually if i'm playing werewolf the apocalypse i want big world shattering stories if i'm running werewolf the forsaken which is an amazing game that i keep local because they play to different strengths better right but, but i like the big epics epic stories and so therefore usually the stories in the settings that i'm running in are rank four and five cairns where it's difficult to get attention. One of my favorite cairns, and I'll bring this up again and again, my forever ST of my group design, a rare, like one of a kind, rare, never happens again cairn in the world. A cairn, a rank five cairn of unity. Oh, wow. A rank five cairn of unity with Phoenix as its cairn totem. There were special rules in that cairn that were sure. brought up all the time about no, no disputes on the bond, none, none whatsoever. You, every the master of the challenge is involved in every dispute, no matter how small. The, they have special rights and special moots conducted during the no moon for the least rage possible, and we take you off the bond where all challenges happen off the bond. Nowhere near, because we are not taking any chance Mm -hmm. of poisoning the very precious sense of unity of this Cairn Opens. Another special rule about this particular Cairn was you had to have at least three Guru, if not more, conducting the Rite of Cairn Opening for you to have a chance of being successful. Sure. What I think you, you tied into a couple of things that they talk about in this section and later on in the book as well, that Cairns are tied to a specific style of spirit or idea or concept um there are cairns that are tied specifically to like the different renown types that you can get as a a garu so glory honor and wisdom and then within those are smaller sections of ideals basically that the garu hold true to so under honor you have justice and sacrifice and unity under glory you have things like courage and love and war and then you in wisdom you have things like craftsmanship memory memory is a thing that i like pulling on for my cairns the sept of the forgotten mm-hmm. the very the opening the sept in the opening story of of rage across the world yep. a very unique sept situated entirely in the umbra not drawing off of any and its cairn spirit is literally named the memory right so and I think that's like, there's fun things you can do with all of these different elements. You can come up with a concept and say, hey, 
this is what my cairn is connected to. And it, if you're running a story around a cairn, that spirit and that ideal, that, that theme is going to be central to your story. So make, think about that before think you carefully set about it. it. Mm -hmm. Think carefully about it. Um, one of my favorite dark ages runs, I based the cairn around the cairn of fertility, a Fenrir sept okay. in the Viking age mm -hmm. around a cairn of fertility. Sure. Maybe one of the only ones left in the world and we're protecting it against all comers because there's more chance of trueborn guru here than most anywhere else in the world. Sure. And it's a special precious place for this reason. But yeah, the, the other thing I'm going to mention is that it literally says you need werewolf player's guide because it mentions a lot of a lot of the Cairn types are explored in werewolf player's guide. Yep. This doesn't really cover them all. It gives you broad subtypes. There are a lot more Cairn subtypes in werewolf player's guide. So you kind of need that book to get the most out of this book mm -hmm. and vice versa. Yeah, which is true. Like, it would have been interesting if I had read those two book, these two books closer to one another, because I think that I'd see more of those overlaps. But I think, thank you for calling that out, because it's absolutely true. That is a book that is called back to a lot in this. Um, it really is, because they cover the set positions. Mm -hmm. They cover the uh, types of cairns. They cover the types of spirits that will inhabit them a little bit. They give it a light treatment in Werewolf of Player's Guide. This goes more in depth. Yep. W20 just took both of these and stuck them in the storyteller's chapter because they had the space to do it. Right. So in chapter one, this book goes through and tells you how to build a cairn, like the specific areas of a cairn. I'm going to go through these real quick, uh, and then I just want to kind of generally talk about them. So there's the bond, which is the spiritual boundary line of the cairn, and Reading this book reminded me in our for our game that Garu know when they cross a bond. It is something they are aware of. There is a spiritual feeling that they feel, I am moving across this. That's really important. Yeah, then there, there was are... a moment in game where where myself and the young and the cub in our group crossed the bonds barrier, and you made a point to narrate that. And my character realizing that his younger companion probably had no idea why all the hairs in the back of his neck just stood up, called it out and said, that feeling you're feeling is you know that you've crossed into a bond of a cairn. We're past the outer, we never got past the outer defenses last time. No. Because and, they didn't want us any closer than that. You may never. That's another story. Um, <laughs> the other areas of the cairn are uh, graves of the hollowed heroes. This is, you know, where you put your dead, which makes a ton of sense. There's a graveyard in every Garu sept. Um, obviously, not everyone. Almost we everyone. don't care. Nah, it, it, it actually says that is not true in the, the couple of sections here where it says that lupus do also have burial places and like uh, and shrines and things like that. They just tend to be a bit more naturalistic. So mm. then there's the living area, which is literally like this is where the Garu live. This is probably if there are any menace in the sept where they live. Um, this is a crash space. This is an apartment. This is a, a barn. Whatever it is, this is a place where people live and sleep, basically. And I want to call out specifically the, the chap, the interstitial fiction in front of this. Mm -hmm. That I read that and it was chilling because to a normal guru, what happened there was a completely normal interaction. 
crash space got suddenly limited because of the destruction of an out of a building. There's limited space. Now the guru of rank are all challenging each other over who gets what crash space and what living quarters. And the young Metis who's lived there all his life just lost his room to a higher ranking guru. Yeah. And, and it's which, one misery too many for him. Poor yeah, guy. Exactly. What's chilling about it is the cup, the last final lines where it says at that moment, deep in his heart, a bitter bread darkness was born. That Amazing. just it still sends chills up my spine. Yep. Because I'm like, where does the worm dwell and breed? Yep. It breeds in misery. And where is more misery than you're going to find anywhere else in the Guru Nation? Yep. In the heart of a poor, abused Metis. Which, and that creates an awful vicious cycle we're going to talk about when we get yep. to the Metis chapter. Yeah. What's really good about this book, we sort of touched on it before, but what's really good is there's lots of fiction in this book. And usually I'm like, oh, lots of fiction in a book. But in this book, the fiction is used to tell you a story, obviously, but it's used to make all of these things seem really real and physical and obvious. And what I like about using it like that is it's like, oh, this is how I can use this in a game. And that's how all of these little sections read, which is amazing. I, mean, I, I love reading the, the fiction almost more than I did reading the sections that followed it. Yeah, same. Because the, the next piece on the shrines, it's the aftermath of a clave duel. Mm -hmm. of Guru is apologizing to his spirit patron for having thinned the ranks of his tribe by killing one of its members. Yeah. The idea of shrines is one of those things that is super important to Garu culture that until this book, and it's really loosely mentioned in a couple of other places, it's not central and it should be. The shrines at a cairn should be one of the most important places, locations, and things that Garu do at that cairn. It's literally the the guru equivalent of a church, right? Or a holy or a holy shrine where you go and talk to your patron spirits, make offerings to them, make offerings to your pack spirit. If your pack is out of a sept, you've probably set up a shrine to your your particular sept your particular pack totem. Mm -hmm. If not the sept totem, there yep. should be a shrine to the sept totem. If there's not a shrine to the sept totem, what are you doing? Right. The shrine to your pack totem should be there. In fact, one of my most memorable alpha challenges I've participated in and lost was building a shrine to honor our pack totem. And I had to organize a team of guru to put together a new shrine for our pack totem at a new spot in our cairn. And I did a better job designing it, but my rival did a better job selling the story of how he built it. So, oh, well, this is, it was a fantastic challenge. These things and happen. Really brought the shrines to life and to focus for the whole group. So yeah. hats off. Great. That, that's how you, that's how you do it. And again, it makes a reference for Axis Mundi, the older spirit book. Right. Because they hadn't put out the new, newer spirit book, but it's uh, another book that you probably should have for sources of ideas for what kind of spirits you can use in cairns. That makes sense. And, and after this section of the shrines, which again, 
that's important. It mm -hmm. talks about your assembly area, which this the assembly area is one of those things that seems like okay, obvious, right? But there has to be a set aside space for the Garu to get together to have all of these fights and conversations and stuff that they have. And that looks different based on your tribe, based on location, based on all these different things. This is going to be the most personalized location in a cairn, I think. In a Bonar can cairn, it's it could be a basketball court, could be an assembly area. Um mm -hmm. It could be a, a longhouse in uh, Younger Brother um, Sept, or it could be a um, a Mead Hall in a Fenrir Sept, or something like that. You know, it could be all of these different things and more. I mean, it, it mentions at the tail end of it, the Gallows Pole Sept meets in the main bar room, which was the Sept of Bonar's base at a bar. The Neon Ice Rink convenes in an abandoned roller skating rink. And as you might expect, the Sept of the Sacred Logo, built in a massive high-rise tower, comes out of a boardroom, which was also used in the Sept of the Crystal Spire in a different game I was running, um, had their meetings in boardrooms because it was a Glasswalker Sept. What did you expect? Yep. And it really brings home the individual nature and character of the tribe running the Sept and also of how the Septs interact. Because if you think about it, play with this. Break it up, intermingle it, and make it work. And in front of this, it reminds you of the Kinfolk Challenge, too. Right. Mm -hmm. Which is, that is an, 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 again, Kinfolk culture within your tribe and sept and packs and all of that sort of stuff is incredibly important to Garu culture. And it's one of those things that does not get, get enough word count, except for moments like this when it's like, oh, a Kinfolk can challenge? Of course. They might They're not part be part of the tribe, right? Just because you are kinfolk doesn't mean you don't have a responsible position within society, which is essential to remember. So, right? Who do you think maintains these sets? Who do you think his name is on? Who do you think's names on the property deeds of property around here? It's not a guru. It's a kinfolk. Exactly. Who do you think built this place? Who do you think provides the food? the supplies who do you think takes care of the without the kinfolk the guru would lose the war yeah they can the guru free you to fight the war yeah and that is they're there i mean like you mentioned kinfolk unsung heroes one of the best books in the line yeah one of the best books in the line and every should be required reading for everyone yeah. player yeah. or st agreed the last couple of sections in the cairn itself are the cairn's heart and the umbra space around the cairn. So I'm just going to, I want to briefly mention this about the cairn's heart. The cairn's heart is the, where the cairn totem lives. It's also where the connection to the umbra becomes nil. It specifically mentions in this book several times that anything can cross over into the umbra through the heart of a cairn. It is one of the few places that any pharaoh can cross over, mm -hmm. any human being can cross over. Heck, mm -hmm. in theory, a vampire could cross over into the Umbra through the heart of a cairn. Why you let a leech get that close to your cairn? <laughs> I'm, the, I'm, the words "ye shall not let a cairn be violated" much, <laughs> but, but yeah, the idea is there. You could, if in the gauntlet is so thin. It's like gauze, and you can step through it without meaning, and other things can step back in. Yeah. They specifically mentioned in this in this little sidebar on the mechanics 
that it's easier you can step sideways without a reflective surface which is a rule in later editions it's more firm yeah but you don't need a reflective surface to step sideways even if you're one of those breeds who has to have one you don't really have to make much of any effort at all because the gauntlet here is so low you shouldn't your gnosis roll should be don't botch yeah it's really what it is and you can slip in and out and the idea that you can slip in and out of the gauntlet through here makes it truly disconcerting if you're not someone who's used to it right like a kinfolk or a random mortal there's all kinds of story hooks you can play with there if you're willing to do so like there's interesting things like i can imagine a pack of garu bringing an enemy to the heart of their cairn and throwing them into the umbra and leaving them there and be, and Bye. like right <laughs> and then all the spirits in the umbra in the cairn are going to be there too and then they're like oh what is this thing that you've brought us and then eat it kill it do whatever that they're going to do away, make it Yep. make it make it's unlife a living heck yep yeah it, it's definitely a possibility mm -hmm. if you want a shortcut to the umbra a lot of cairn totem places can be anchor heads yep can slip you i mean it it's where the moon bridges connect clo close by here you're gonna have all sorts of powers flowing through here and this is also where the character of the sept should be most obvious if you're writing a sept sept heart space it really needs to resonate with the power of the sept itself yep 100 I mean, and one of the things that they mention in the fiction and these stories is like the cairn can get corrupted if there's a specific energy of the cairn and all the actions of the garu around it go against that it can hurt the cairn totem it can hurt the cairn itself so when you it's choose why... yeah, as a storyteller when you choose a specific type of cairn you've got to remember my my sept has to support that theme because if they don't that's going to be a plot that's going to happen in the story which can be absolutely fine but if you're like i'm gonna have a, a, a cairn of love and then everyone hates one another guess what that's not going to be a cairn of love for very long unless you're doing it deliberately because the guru are screwing up and your characters have to realize it to fix it for sure which is absolutely a valid plot so the rest of this chapter which is good this rest of this chapter goes through lots of different things protecting the cairn building the cairn how spirits work all kinds of different things like that but honestly i don't want to spend a lot of time on it as a storyteller, if you want to know how do I build a cairn, reading chapters one and then chapter two are really important. Chapter two talks about what do specific tribal cairns look like? How do specific tribes interact with their style of cairn? And most of these, in my opinion, are really obvious. And then they also reinforce the all of this with little bits of fiction and information that most cairns in the modern day are multi-tribal. So yes, a cairn might be like a Fianna cairn, but it is also a Bonar cairn and a Child of Gaia cairn and whoever else they have as allies who are with them at that cairn. Um, so it may have a flavor, 
but it's probably also going to have elements of those other tribes as well. Yeah, it's so that's this is you if you're painting a picture of a new cairn, dip your brush in the primary color of the dominant tribe, pull some strokes from that, paint your brush in the other tribes that have a presence. What elements of their style will support the cairn type? What elements of their style will support the story you're trying to tell? Paint yep. that in. Yep. What's elements of what inspires you from that section? This is an idea. This is an idea's place. And it's yes, it's very stereotypical treatment of different types of cairns. But it's not bad. Like it it's is not stereotype. Bad stereotype. It's good stereotype. Right. It's all of the these are uh, fairly obvious things that these tribes will have worked into their cairns, which I think is actually valuable. Sometimes that over stereotyping gets too much, but it's like the average Fianna Cairn probably does have these sorts of like things present, these particular individuals and positions and so forth. That makes sense. That's what the culture of that tribe will be. It's expressed through their cairns. So it makes sense. It yeah. also gives you sections on non-Garu, so other Farah and how they either have cairns, don't have cairns of them their own, and how they interact if they go to a cairn of the Garu, which I think all of that's really helpful as well. It is. It, it's, it makes this a book that can be used by someone who wants to run a Changing Breeds game just as well. Yep. I, I appreciate that they give a couple pages to the Beast Courts, to the Hangiokai, that you gave me an idea of what the cairns of every type of shifter are, if they hold them, why they hold them, what they do with them. And they don't, but the general impression I get is cairns are mostly a guru thing. Right. The others, the other fair either don't have many because they have to fight off the wolves to keep them, or they hide them well and the guru, or they use different types like the Bastet's Den realms. Right because they have to use them to cross the umbra right which all of that is super helpful and useful and they go into like a, a good not too much and not too little of how that looks even with like the rokea one of the mm -hmm. things i love about the rokea are that the war roar qual or whales or sometimes dolphins and other cetaceans can be living cairns themselves and the awesome story hook that offers i have never run a rokea game Honestly, I would love to because the amount of lore built into a group that almost no one has ever played or will ever play is kind of fascinating. There's so much interesting things there that almost never gets dealt with. It's awesome. Yeah. And I appreciate that they put that much thought into it that even if even a couple paragraphs is helpful, it's massively helpful. Yep. So... Agreed. You can mostly skip that. I did want to flip back and talk a little bit about the Cairn Spirit section, okay. because that's kind of important. The spirit defines the Cairn. Sure. And you have to consider carefully what type of spirit supports the Cairn type you want to do, and the story you want to tell, what its demands are, because every spirit has, every Cairn spirit has entered into a pact with its basically pack which is the sept's people mm -hmm. the sept's people are bonded to this cairn's totem in much the same way that a pack is bound to their totem 
and again, we both prefer the word spirit patron, but we're still using it because it's the book term in the book. Sure. Yeah. And uh, for listeners, I do try to use patron and occasionally forget because everything is written using these particular words. I think you make a good point. One thing that I want to tie into the next chapter a little bit, the chapter three, is that chapter three is about the different positions of the sept, both like here are who the elders are going to be that are going to be in charge of everything. And then, then here are some positions that players can have and interact with. And they give a lot of them. And I think maybe too many of them. But what I think is interesting, again, is if you if you view the totem as a spirit that is attached and connected to all members, it gives you rules for the cairn has this effect to all werewolves within the sect as well. Like you can get a bonus to willpower or a bonus to rage or a bonus to whatever it is tied to the totem and the uh, the positions in the cairn have to like work to appease and keep those benefits coming from the patron of the cairn itself. It, it really is because you have to work to it, there's the literal sacrifice of gnosis points mm -hmm. which is normally accomplished during the rebel at the end of a moot which right. is why we hold monthly moots to recharge mm -hmm. the cairn because the guru are also drawing from the energies of the cairn when they need them which is why the elders are cautious about letting you go to the cairn and perform the rite of cairn opening right because every time you're doing that you're making a withdrawal from the cairn's bank of gnosis and they have to put that gnosis back somehow and there's a lot of ways to do that, but there's that are more than just dropping off a check in the bank is the is the way the, the way the system notes it. The what I love about a, that line too is that line is just like you do not do this. Like putting do notes do this. into mm -hmm. the cairn is a it has to be a role-playing moment. There is a sacrifice, there is chiminage that you are paying, there is an interaction with the spirit, not just of the Cairn, but of the, the other spirits that live within the Cairn as well, that you're doing at all the shrines and everything. All of that management is essential to a Garu story. I think the most important role in the sect, and we're going to get to this, the most important role in a sept is the Keeper of the Land. Yep. By far the most important role in the sept, if the Keeper of the Land doesn't know their business, the Cairn is going to decay. Yeah, if the, absolutely. It, it's more important than any other job, it, and it's very important that you know how to do. The warder can hold back every threat there is. The right master can ensure that everybody does things to a T. The elders can dispense justice and hold things together. But if the keeper of the land isn't doing their job, your cairn is dying. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. So let's get, without without further ado, let's actually get into those roles. So I just want to list them. We could spend a, an entire episode, I think, talking about the different offices and the different like responsibilities. Maybe we can do that at a different time. I'm just going to list them so we have them and maybe like a brief like, this is what it does. So I'm going to try that. So you've got the Collar of the Wild, um, which is a moot office. Some of these lesser offices are moot positions. And I think it's odd that they call them out, but it is what it is. Lesser office, whenever you see lesser office, I want you as an ST to read, they mean for players to occupy this right. job. Exactly. So, so whenever it says a lesser office, 
players do this job. Player office. Yeah. Bigger all bigger job. Players should not do this job. Not at first, at least. Not at first, at least. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you've got Collar of the Wild, Master of the Howl, Tail Singer, Truth Catcher, Wormfoe. Those are all the lesser offices. And most of those are moot offices, which is fine. I'm not going to explain all of them. People can read them. Those are there. I think the names are all interesting and it's like, okay, I want to know what a truth catcher does. They mediate disputes. It's not as fun as it sounds. They're the it, lawyer it, of the it's sept. Basically the, they're, they're more than the lawyer. They're kind of the sept prosecutor for lack of a better word. Yeah. They're the stacked sept's inborn prosecutor. Whereas the water is your defensive general. The worm foe is your offensive general. Yeah. Your tail singer. That's the guy who organizes the performances at the moot. Mm -hmm. He determines what galliards go in what order, and he's basically the one in charge of the Moots Entertainment. It was a very important position to, if you're a galliard, suck up to the tail singer. Right. Otherwise, your set pact is not getting any renown because right. you're not going to get to perform. And if you don't get to perform, your pact mates don't get renown. They don't get renown. They don't go up in rank. They don't go up in rank. They look at you like, what are you doing? Why are right. you not doing your job, galliard? So right. suck up to the tail singer. <laughs> um, Master of the Howl says, surprisingly, probably actually a good job for Theurge. Mm -hmm. They are in charge of invoking spirits at the at the moot's summoning, as is the caller of the wild. And that's why it really like, is. Here's my thing. In some ways, the Master of the Howl and the Caller of the Wild strike me as why do we have these as two separate positions? But that's okay. Same thing with the tail singer. You could probably wrap all three of those offices together and i'm not going to complain about it but it depends and on what your sept looks like if you're running a larp having all these positions makes a ton of sense if you're running a tabletop game maybe you only have a handful of them and that's okay there's another point i want to bring up that comes from the player's guide i'm sorry to interrupt you um this comes from the player's guide all of these are an ideal right ideally if your sept had enough guru you would staff all of these positions with an individual. Right. But the book straight up tells you in these latter days, take the number of guru that would give you all the set positions filled and a pack or two to go exploring and do jobs outside the sept. Take all that guru, cut it in half. Yeah. Maybe quarter it. That's the number of guru you've got. So you've got to have overlap. There are some guru who are going to hold multiple jobs and have to do both. Yep. And there are some seps that are a pack because that's all that's left for all. Garu die a lot. When you're at war and you have huge attrition, sometimes, and our World of Rage players are aware of this, sometimes you end up with a sept that really should be huge, but is five Garu left going what do we do and e this book even has a section of fiction where it's like i'm a looking bunch it up right now i know exactly what you're talking mm -hmm. about i'm looking it up where it is right now because it's here and it's very important oh here it is page 24 um just talking about what happens when a poor sept of when it, the only survivors of an attack on a sept are cubs and cleoth yeah. And none of them was taught the moot right. Right. But they're going to try it anyway. trouble. Yep. That Karen is not getting recharged because the guru don't know how to do it. Yep. But what I love about that is they are, they know how important it is. 
And I can see this in a game, a pack trying really hard, like, uh, but we, I think we do this and then we do that. And as a storyteller, I would let them try and teach themselves the right and see what happens. And the other thing is, if the Theurge is smart, uh, if I was the Theurge of that group, I would summon the Karen Totem like, please, please, please walk us through this. Right. <laughs> walk us through this. We'll do it right. We promise. And you got to hope that the Karen Totem actually is capable of communicating with you that way because some of them are not some of them just don't are so alien to human uh, and garu understanding that you're asking like please tell me this thing and they're just like you do the thing that's your thing i just suck up the energy from you yeah that, that's a plot there you know what i mean you know it's a story there yep. so those were the minor offices and so they're gotta, meant, for, meant for players to hold Let's so, go to the major ones. Yep, let's go to the major ones. We got Gatekeeper, Keeper of the Land, Master of the Challenge, Master of the Right, Warder, and then you maybe have your Council of Elders, which maybe that's a position, maybe it doesn't need to be. It depends on your sept. Maybe you have a council, maybe you have an alpha mm -hmm. who runs the sept. Maybe the... It, most of the septs I've run into... Those five offices you just named are the Council of Elders. Right, exactly. And membership, holding one of those offices puts you on the Council of Elders if the Council of Elders is not an established pack that is taking over and run this sept. Um, some septs I've written for games, it's traditional that all members of this pack are the Council of Elders. Right. As members die and are replaced, new members join the pack the same pack has effectively existed for centuries, running this one sept under this one totem that is aligned with the Cairn totem. And that's how it works. That's mm -hmm. how the sept of Peacebringer, I wrote the sept of Peacebringers Hollow that way, is that these leaders of a group of a, of a pack dedicated to Unicorn, because it was a child of Gaia's sept, mm -hmm. yet the sept, most of its population was evenly split between Fenrir and Fianna. So you had both of those tribes minorly represented, but the children of Guy are heavily represented in the leadership. Right. Which and makes that's, sense. And that's how you have flavor. That's how you can flavor these cairns. Yep. Um, it, it then... So I think the major offices deserve a little more attention, though. No. Well, I don't... So maybe. They're fine. Here's the thing. If you are a storyteller... You can find this information in W20 really easily, or in this book if you're running um, second edition. Or it's also in the player's guide. It is also in the player's guide. So I think there's a lot of places for people to dig into it. I'm going to just tell people, go and dig into it on your own, because I really want to get to our last chapter. This chapter... We really want to get to this chapter. We, we, we don't... I don't want to, Jim, but we need to get to this last chapter. This... Chapter three does give a good description of the cairn uh, right of building a cairn and all of the things you need to do to do that. Again, if that's something you yep. want to run as a plot, dig into this, read it. It's helpful. You can run it as written or you can create your own version based on it. And I think that's totally valid and cool. Oh man. Some of the most epic games I ever run. have been focused around doing a right of cairn building. Yep. Same. Some of the, best LARPs I've ever participated in started with 
hey, we're a bunch of Garu all getting together in this area. We think there's a cairn here. Oh, hey, we found where it used to be. Oh, now we need to like do all this stuff to like get the things we need to build the cairn. And now we need found, to do the right. You found a dormant cairn or you found a cairn which has severely lost power. Yeah. I mean, for example, the sept you talked about with the sept of the collected, which is going to be here. I mean, I just commented, it's probably lost power. Because right. it's lost so many of its guru defenders yep. that they can't maintain its high gnosis rating. So you'd have to perform the right of Karen building again right. to charge it back up to where it used to be. And the right of Karen building is always going to be a bloodbath because the worm just hates it yep. when and you build a new Karen. One of the things that it mentions is that is going to the worm is going to attack you when you build a cairn because it sends out the spiritual beacon to everything in the umbra all around you. Hey, there's a thing of power here, which sounds stupid to me from a why do Geru do this standpoint, but from a that's how the, the powers of the spirit world are going to react point of view makes sense. And again, you don't build a cairn willy nilly. If you're building no. a cairn, you need to do it with purpose and make sure you've got enough Garu to protect that thing. I mean, if you don't have enough Garu to survive protecting the right of Cairn building, you do not have enough Garu left to protect the Cairn. Yeah. You yeah. may not have enough after you finish the right of Cairn building. Yeah. Right. To really hold the Cairn you've just built. Which that was uh, actually a piece of a story and a fiction of the story of Rithus Forge, when one of the favorite Cairns I ever built is at the end of the Rite of Summoning, the, the Rite of Cairn Builder is about to fail, Ritha, the namesake of the Cairn, gives up his life to give enough Gnosis for the Cairn to be born, and he becomes part of the Cairn Avatar. And now his brother is staring at, his brother Ada is staring at the Fenrir and the Fianna who helped him build the Rite, and it's like, oh, screw. Now you guys outnumber me and my boys and all my silver fangs are busted up. It's like, no, this is our cairn, and if you really want it, you can answer to my clave. And they did. <laughs> but that's that—that's the thing, is uh, you don't build a cairn without planning to defend it. Right, right. And making allies to defend it is an important part of that, working it into the network. You're going to, if you're a pack wanting to build a cairn, there is, as a storyteller, you should be running errands for every other sept in the area, making friends, making alliances, making future yep. because deals. Because those Garu can come and help you build your cairn. That's the other thing that kind of doesn't get mentioned in this book is that you can you can get friends and help and, and support to do that if you want to. And sometimes cairns have like a mutual aid system where Garu come from one to the other to help one another, protect each other. Those networks of cairns are really important as well. And right. lots of fun stories can be told around the network of cairns that you have. I mean, you could run a short story arc about, hey, you're the ambassadors. We're sending, we want to rebuild relations with this cairn. We want to reopen a moon bridge between our two cairns yep. that has yep. been disused. Let's find out what happened with them, why they haven't been willing to help us what do they need help? And then you discover on the other end, oh, we're sorry, we couldn't keep it up because we've lost a lot of guru and we need help rebuilding on our end. Uh, okay, let's help you find some more help. Right. And right. it and you can have all kinds of stories emerge from that. Just a simple diplomatic mission where you have an obvious goal, come back with a path stone, bring them our path stone, 
And at the end, we perform a big, cool rite. And now we can run over to their sept and they can run over to ours. And we can have a big party at the end of it. And we celebrate having new allies who will protect us and we'll protect them. So we have distracted ourselves from talking about the final chapter. And I'm not saying that there isn't a good reason for that distraction, but we need to talk about it. Yeah, it's our least favorite. We'll we'll both acknowledge this is a part of this, a part of this game that bothers both of us on a deep level. Yeah. So smacks of ableism. It's smacks of um, mistreatment. It's smacks of all kinds of, awful things because the way the guru treat the metis is just it burns me the wrong way yeah as i said earlier that's how you build a path to the worm in the heart of a metis so i have a couple of things i want to say before we dive into this too deeply one the term metis is fraught it's problematic um but there right now there's not a better word for us to use um i don't love using it but i think we're going to keep using it because that's the the term used in this chapter and everything. It's not explicitly offensive, so I don't feel bad um, using it, but it does have other meanings and other connections to real world people. So that said, the entire concept of werewolves mating with other werewolves gets into the whole like concept of breeding gets as the thing that constantly comes up in these books and frustrates me. And then you have the ableism of uh, consistent disability then you have the uh the social uh issues with hey we're, we're going to treat these people terribly even though i there's no fault of theirs there's no fault to theirs at all and yet they're being treated terribly so you have all of those abuse mechanics uh, mechanics which is a problem built in practically have, a mechanic yes right so you have an entire chapter here about werewolves that are born of other werewolves now there are people who legitimately say this sort of balance of how do i portray disability and um, outcastness and things like that is kind of essential to a werewolf story and on some level i respect that argument because a lot of the world has been built up around this the, around the litany and around this idea that werewolves should not mate with other werewolves because they, because it's one, it's a law that they're breaking and laws are super important to Garou society. And two, it allows you to have kind of introspective, how do we treat people in our lives in these sorts of situations in the real world? So I can see that but I also still find it super problematic on so many levels. It's the same problem I have with people who want to scrub every element of isms and badness out of their fantasy worlds without evil to confront. Are you really good? I can understand people not wanting to encounter things that they have problems with in their own lives. And I can understand that we, a lot of games have had bad isms as core mechanics, racism, sexism ableism all these kinds of bad isms can come in and have been core mechanics of other games to the point where it's practically baked into the genre and confronting those evils you hope that your guru are not going to be the ones who mistreat us right you want them to see 
some other guru kicking the Septmetis and say, hey, man, stop that. You right. want that. But if they, you don't provide that example, if you don't provide that possibility, there's no possibility for you to do or show your goodness. And that's I mean, the intentional setup. The, the idea in all of the world of darkness, I'm going to throw, I'm going to just state this because this is fact. The idea of the original world of darkness was progressive people pushing back against the horrible systems that were in place in their societies. Anarchs were supposed to be the player characters in Vampire the Masquerade. Your pack in Werewolf is supposed to be, we want to make all of this better and put aside our like stupidity and get through all of these bad parts of our culture and fix them. You're not supposed to encourage your players to be those assholes. You're not. And if you're doing that, I'm sorry. I don't think that's the right way to play this game. I uh, acknowledge that people can disagree with me. Right. And the it allow doing that allows for moments. I mean, I'm particularly proud of a moment that my character had last game where I'd literally discovered a traitor amongst another sept. And the rage in my character said, rip his head off tear him to bits and the goodness of the character said and if you do that Gaia will have one less defender right and so he ultimately his goodness won out and he said throw him to the to his pack and let you deal with him I know what I think what he deserves because he would have got us all killed but you deal with him I can't my rage will send me picking the wrong answer yeah and that kind of moments are what you want your players to do yeah because you're you're trying to tee up moments for character and personal growth and opportunities to be i can be a better person here is a way of mimicking my ability to be a better person in the game now i can reflect that in my real life that i think is one of the main goals of role playing um instead i see a lot of role players wallow in being shitty and I don't think we need to do that. I think we can look at better aspects of ourselves in role-playing and try to find those places. The only reason I would include isms of the sorts that I've named in my games is because if they show up in my games, I want you as a player to confront this. I want you as a player to fight this. Right. I want you as a player to choose to combat this in whatever way you think is appropriate and i'm going to to make sure you're okay with it before i bring those elements in and then if you're like yeah i want to fight back against those things yes then it is totally appropriate to set up a sexist villain and be like take down the sexist villain i have run games where women have been like women and men have been particularly like i want to take down a sexist villain and it's like i can provide that for you like that is absolutely appropriate punching nazis is fun it is something we should encourage like that's not a problem okay that's, so that's that it. We've established that we're we both look at this as a this is included so that you can see an oppressed minority dealing with their oppression let's dive into what is it like to be that oppressed minority that's born of shame, born of the thing that is top of list of the litany, 
the most the first and most important rule by most gurus opinion was broken and you exist yeah and you and and these garu are treated terribly from the moment they're born if if their parents survive then their parents are treated like crap i would probably lose rank uh, and then you are stuck for for eight to nine years of your life in a cairn if you're lucky and yeah or in hiding if you're not lucky like outside of a cairn um yeah. you don't get to interact with people most of the time when you do like a, they say a couple of like the most progressive seps have like groups of metis children or like they allow these metis children to interact with other garu kids but the problem with that is they have rage from the moment they're born so really and they're born with the teeth and claws right fully functional right which causes aggravated damage right and their rage is manifest yeah from the beginning so but imagine a child that has a tantrum and now imagine that child has rage and aggravated claws it is one of those situations where it's like none of this is not the fault of these kids at all but i can understand how difficult it would have to be as a parent with a child with some like uh, emotional control problems it will would be incredibly difficult to raise a metis child the way that it is written in this setting and that's just a fact that is right and then you have all the oppression elements that are built into like the culture and man it is it, like their hope is to hit their first change it's why then they can finally go outside right but maybe not because depending on what sort of uh of way their curse shows in their body which of course at the time white wolf calls deformities which is which again that gets into the ableism with, but yeah and so all all menace children have some sort of physical or mental ailment that is obvious to others. Um, that could be a um, you know a loss of an eye or a, a limb or all kinds of other different things. They give you they give you a mechanical list of them in here, which again you don't need to mechanize disability. I understand why it was done in this era but from a modern game perspective you don't do that it's not something we need to lean into but but they spend time they give you all that list they give you a list of this is how menace children are uh, and menace are perceived by each tribe which we have some of that from earlier books as well it's useful here to see some of it none of it for me was surprising um but do you have any thoughts in general about that and how the tribes interact with them? I wanted to at least touch on the fact that they don't get a break even in death. Right. Even in death, the Metis don't get a break. Because what happens when you die is you're a guru. You go to your breed form. What is the Metis's breed form? Yep, Krinos. What's gonna happen to you? Yep. You're gonna be a walking, you're gonna be a walking veil breach all your life. And if you die in the wrong place in time, you're a veil breach in your death. Yep. You're never going to get any of the other things. You're not going to be honorably mated. 
You're not going to wear a clave proudly among the defenders of the sept. You're going to be thrown on the front lines from the moment you first change till the moment you expire. And if there's a crap job on the sept, you're the one who gets to do it. Yeah. There is no surprise that one of the first guru gifts a guru gets is curse of hate of Metis gets a curse of hatred yeah. or it, it, because they're the ones who suffer that kind of scorn and the way the individual tribes handled the Metis, you need to understand this from the perspective of how your individual Metis may have had your experience. Right. Don't be a Metis in the Fianna. Yeah. Don't. Or or the Fenrir. Or the Fenrir for that matter. Or the shadow, uh, not the shadow, the, or the um, silver fangs. The silver fangs will they'll hide you away. You're straight up be right hidden right. away. You're the shame that gets hidden for the rest of our lives because it's like no, we don't have metis. What are you talking about? Yeah, we and don't... there's actually a whole thing in here where it's like where they just ignore the fact that they have them, and it's like come on, no one's that stupid. Like we know that that Garu right there is your son. Like we're not stupid. Like, no, you're gonna you're gonna have the ob. Yes, we have metis. Yes, the silver fangs have metis, and they have to acknowledge this at some point. They will, and they be, which is unfortunate because the silver fangs prize breeding, and a metis with two per, with two silver fang parents has some of the purest breeding in the nation. Well, look, your sin reflects your pride. Yeah, and yeah, and that that's the that's the hardest thing to do is. If you're going to portray Guru Society as an ST correctly, that's the really hard thing to do. Yeah. Is portray how other Guru, NPCs, elders, the people your characters respect and look up to, if you're going to keep that consistent, you have to show them being cruel to metis well you have to make that call you have to make that decision you have to decide am i going to lean into this as an element of culture or am i going to try and dance around it and you can you can choose hey and honestly in a world of rage in the game that you are playing in i haven't had a lot of menace characters yet part of that is because there are not very many of them in our version of the world of darkness. There are reasons for that, that may come up in the story, but it's also for me, I'm not super comfortable portraying and leaning into these elements of, of uh, werewolf the apocalypse. I, it just, it strikes me in all the wrong ways. So I, I don't want to have lots of it as part of the story. There are going to be a couple of menace characters that are going to come up. Um, but I'm not going to lean into a lot of these like prejudicial elements. In fairness, part of the reason why, and I stated this on a previous episode, why I run Dark Ages is because I have a real good reason to say there aren't metas around. Yeah, It's an awful reason, but I don't have to portray that much because there aren't many metas around for you to see treated badly. Whereas in the modern nights, where the apocalypse is nigh, we need every man on deck. Yeah, Metis yeah. survive, and that maybe, and it you can have the argument over which is crueler. Yeah, and that and that is a conversation that I think players and storytellers can have with one another too, and figure out what the balance is that's right for them. Um, and again, 
as a storyteller, I'm telling you as a storyteller, all storytellers listening to this, you get to decide. Ultimately, you can say, this is how I'm going to portray my Garou Nation. And if your Garou Nation is just like, you know what? We're cool with Menace. I am not going to tell you you can't do that. And White Wolf can't tell you you can't do that. Go it's your game and run it that way. And if, if that is better for you and better for your players, please do it. Absolutely. I would prefer to run in those kind of games because as someone with a with an intellectual disability, I kind of find the meta, I'm grateful that they didn't make autism a Metis flaw. Uh, I would have been almost offended by that. I don't think they do in this book, Jim, but I do think it is referenced in another book. Just I not. wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, it is. It's one of those things. Surprised. Yep. It, it, it's. It, I wouldn't be surprised. It would fall under a derangement. Yeah. It would fall under a derangement, and the and the derangement has always been a valid thing to be to use as a metis flaw. It's just not an obvious one. Right. Uh, so it's just yeah, it's. This book does a couple of things that I think are, or this chapter does a couple of things that I think are useful. One of those things is it ties in Rage Across the Heavens and says, mm -hmm. hey, if you're using this, you can do all of these different things with that story and with this section and kind of tie it in. Um, I think that's useful to have that. I like it when they link books up with each other and say, we're, we're not forgetting this really big meta plot book happened. It also gives you I really like the uh, all of the um, Metis of Note. In particular, the first Ronin and Bittersone. Mm -hmm. Those two, for me, are really, really interesting, particularly because I usually tie the first Ronin story into um, number one, who is, or number two, number two, who is the Worms, like, um, main Black Spiral Dancer dude. Um, I usually tie those two stories in with one another. Um, so some fun things you can do there. Right. Bittersone and the first Ronin. Um, I really liked the story of explaining how the Met the first Metis came to be. And it kind of explained why the Silent Striders and the Children of Gaia are more reasonable with their Metis than most. Right. And you can take the attitude of and so like Josh was saying, the tribal stereotypes here are presented as this is rules as written. And every game with rules as written, you can take them and toss them out the window if it suits you. If it, it so you can take that as as Josh was saying, you could take that slider of Metis hate and dial it back to the point where it's problematic but not burdensome. And you can make the people who believe in it outliers you can make them more mainline you can make this a thing the guru society is evolving on that we're where there's more metis and there's more room to prove that metis are good and metis are helpful and metis are awesome that maybe we're changing our beliefs on this mm -hmm. and your characters can ride that wave or your characters can start that wave again as i said if i'm going to include a problematic element like this and I should have mentioned the consent mechanics. I'm still learning those myself, but it's going to be with consent and it's going to be with the explicit statement of, I want you to do something about this. Yeah. I don't, sure. I want, if there's evil in my world, I want you to address it. Yeah. And it may not be perfect. You, uh, your pack may not address those things perfectly, but that's okay because 
when we're addressing inequity in our games, it is a potential testing ground for how, how do we deal with inequity in our real lives. Again, for me, role-playing games are an opportunity to do that. And then for other people, role-playing games are just fun. They don't want to think about any of that and mess with any of that. And that's fine. Totally valid. I think the world of darkness opens you up for introspection. If you're not introspective after playing the world of darkness, I'm surprised. But Yeah, you, you, I'm wondering if you got the point. Yeah. It's kind of like watching Star Trek. If you watch Star Trek and you don't feel challenged on your beliefs, so you didn't see that, then you maybe missed the point. Yeah. All right. So, so I'm going to wrap this up. Um, I think we've had a really good conversation about this book. Jim, out of 10 path stones, how many path stones would you give this book? Yeah, I've been thinking about that one. Because this is kind of an essential book, if you're running a Chronicle, if you're, I might give this different ratings if you're an ST versus a player. Mm -hmm. As a player, this is a solid six out of 10, I would say, because this has got some useful information about how your society functions and how you want. If you're a Metis player, you're going to get a lot more out of it than if you are a Hamid or um, Lupus player, but you're still going to get stuff out of this if you're, no matter how you're running it. As an ST, I'd have to give it a solid eight out of 10. I'm docking it to. One, because of the misleading Ron Spencer cover art. And one, because you tell me that you've seen one Karen, you've seen one Karen, you can design your Karens any way you want. And then you hand me a set of tinker toys and that are like required elements that every Karen has this. And you want me to believe that you're not, my players who read this book are not going to expect every Karen to have these parts of it. Right. And right. so if I present them a Karen that doesn't have that, they're going to wonder why it doesn't have that. Maybe there's a story in there, maybe there's not. So it's because of that dueling um, unclear instructions, I will dock it a, dock it another path stone. So 8 out of 10, average rating of 7, I'd say. This is still, if you're an ST, this, should, this book should be in your library. Okay. If you run ST running Werewolf, it should be in your library. But bear in mind, you need you should have it alongside the player's guide. You should have it alongside Access Mundi. And you probably need those resources first and the storyteller's guide and then pick up this. So I think that's valid. However, I am going to give this book uh, in the era. I'm going to say if you're running second edition, this book is a six out of 10 path stones. I, I, all the problems I've mentioned but it is a six because you should read all of the fiction in this. Everyone should, regardless. Everyone. You should find this. Player, you should read the fiction. Player, all of you read the fiction, all yeah. of it. For the rest of it, I actually think for most players and most storytellers, you can ignore. Particularly if you're running Werewolf 20th Anniversary Edition. From a 20th Anniversary Edition perspective, I might even give this a lower rating because all of this stuff is repeated better in W20 or other W20 books. That said, from a fiction standpoint, from a understanding Garu society standpoint, I think absolutely everyone should go and find this book just to read those parts and then hand the book to someone else and say, read those parts and then keep handing the book, pay it forward. That is what I think should be done with this particular book. I can follow that. Cool. I can go with that. 
Cool. So until we finally get an answer to the question of when will you rage, I'll talk to you all again next time.